Oh, Father, how great thou art. Then sings our souls, our Savior God to thee. How great thou art. The name above every name. The King of kings. The Lord of all. The faithful witness. The Alpha and the Omega. The beginning and the end. The one who knows the end from the beginning. The one who dwells in unapproachable light. The magnificent one. The one who has perfected perfection. That is our King. That is our Savior. The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. The one through which one day very soon every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The Son of God, Savior of the world. We bow in your presence right now our hearts and with our hands I pray God that as we come under the authority of the word which you have spoken the authority it is over all the universe we would come humbly and reverently to listen and to respond not in pride not with distraction Lord anything from this week any sin in our heart that is keeping from us from hearing you today I pray right now in the quietness of our heart we just cast that on you because we know you care for us the distractions, the anxieties the hurts, the fears all at your feet right now say change me Lord help me Lord speak to me be with my mouth guard it from error Father and say what you want to say to your people In Jesus' name I pray. Church, if you agree, say amen. Amen. You may be seated. Well, loved ones, let's open up our Bibles to John chapter 4. We're looking at verses 15 to 26 today. If you do not have a Bible with you, our ushers are coming forward right now. Just put up your hand. We would love to put a copy of God's Word in front of you. And if you do not have a copy of God's Word at home, you can keep that as a gift. So we can encourage you to study God's Word on your own. So important, so needed. And, And this morning's text is taken from page 518 in those Bibles that we are handing out. And so here we are continuing on in chapter 4 in our series of John, part 1, and we have about three messages left, loved ones. The, the last hundred meters we're on, three messages left of the gospel of John that we will do this year, and then we will put a stop to that and start it up again, Lord willing, in the fall with chapter 5. But let's recall where we're picking things up here. Jesus is in the middle of a dialogue. He's in the middle of a conversation. He has traveled to Samaria from Judea and he stopped in the town of Sychar at a place called Jacob's Well where he met a Samaritan woman and began a conversation with her about the gift of God. So here, let's get our context, our geographical context. You see up there. So Jesus and his disciples were baptizing people near the fords of Jericho and then he moves north to Sychar and this is where he is now. It's about a two and a half days walk from there, and he's met this woman at the well, a Samaritan woman no less, and he begins to talk with her about the gift of God, the living water of salvation and satisfaction in Jesus Christ. 
It's a beautiful conversation. And today we continue in the second half of that where Christ now shifts the focus. He shifts the focus of the conversation from talking about living water from God. He focuses now on the true worship of God that that living water will lead to. And he presses now, he's taking a more personal approach, he's pressing now into the heart of the Samaritan woman, drawing out the heart and explaining to her what it means to be a true worshiper of God. A true worshiper of God. Now, there's many people in this room, and no doubt we've come from many backgrounds on what exactly true worship looks like and what worship is. All right, so let's be clear and get a a biblical working definition of what worship truly is. So if we look, if we did a systematic theological study of all the passages on worship, it would be combined and all pointing to, in some way, shape, or form, this definition right here of what worship is. Write this down, it's on the screen. Worship is the passionate expression of my love for God because of his love for me. That overflows in my life and from my life. Let me say it again. Worship is the passionate expression of my love for God. Responding to or because of his love for me that overflows in my life and from my life. Now, there's our definition that we see systematically throughout scripture that it points to. But it begs the question. What does true worship to God practically look like? If God is, is saying we, it is an absolute necessity to worship him in a specific way, I don't know about you loved ones, but I want to make sure I'm doing that if he's going to receive it. What are the marks of worship that God is seeking and expects from his people? And this, this loved ones is such a timely and important message in the church today. Huge You say, why? Because worship, if you look around the church landscape today, increasingly, worship has become more about performance in front of God than actual praise to God. More about performance than actual praise to God. It was it's now becoming more and more about self-advocation than Christ adoration. It's becoming more about the preferences of man than the person of Christ. It's becoming looked at as more and more as only a certain event. Just on a Sunday morning thing. Just at a conference thing. Then I can truly worship. You know, I get really bummed out when when I talk to Christians from all over the country and they're like, oh, I can't wait for the next conference. I gotta get fired up about Jesus. I'm like, what's happening on Sunday? You, You... You can only meet Christ at a conference. That's the only place you can truly worship. Something's going on in your heart. It's only a certain event they look at it as, rather than an ongoing lifestyle, day to day. If I could sum all that up, worship has become more about the work of our hands than the posture of our heart. And here in this text... This is the issue that Jesus is confronting in the life of the Samaritan woman and by extension, he's confronting in our lives today. And here we see two essential, that is not an overstatement, 
two essential and critical qualities that God is seeking from his people that should mark the life of a true worshiper of Christ if Christ is to receive their worship, our worship, and be glorified in it. There's two essential qualities that we see here. So church, get your pens ready, get your sermon notes ready, and get your Bibles in your hand. Let's stand to honor the authority of God's word as we read together. John chapter 4 Verses, we're going to look at just the first five verses right now, 15 to 19. Let's read. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Jesus said to her, Go, call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, You are right in saying I have no husband, for you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you have said is true. The woman said to him, Sir, I I perceive that you're a prophet. Look at verse 20. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Let's just keep going. It's so good. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming. He is called Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Look at this statement. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. And all God's people said, amen. You may be seated. Well, the first mark of a true worshiper is this. To truly worship Christ, I must recognize my need for him. To truly worship Christ, I must recognize my need for him. And the challenge, the question that we are confronted with from that truth is this. Jesus Christ is all I need. What am I substituting for him? Jesus Christ is all I need. What am I substituting for him? Let's get some context. Look at verse 15. The woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or have to come here to draw water. Okay, context. Context is key, loved ones. After Jesus explains to the woman in verses 1 to 14 about the living water of salvation that was available to her and that she would never be thirsty again if she received it. Welling up into eternal life. The woman responds by saying, yes, I want it, but she wants it so she doesn't have to keep coming to the well to draw water. She's missing the point. Jesus is talking about her spiritual thirst and this woman's still on the horizontal plane of, yeah, I don't want to come in the middle of the day and hear the shame and the snicker of the ladies and I don't want to come in the middle of the hot day and have to drag water out from this deep well. That's the line she's thinking on. So what Jesus does, he changes the focus. He takes a more personal approach to get to the heart of the woman and to show her who he was and her need for him and need for her cleansing from sin. Now look at verses 6 to 18. Jesus starts to get real personal. Aren't you thankful, loved ones? Aren't you thankful that we have a God who's completely transcendent over all and yet he's totally imminent with us in these moments? Aren't you thankful for that? 
that he's a personal God. He's not just some figment that we call to, some spirit that we call to, but he's imminent with you that he sees and he knows exactly where our hearts are at and what we are going through and is available in that moment. Aren't you glad about that? I am. Praise the Lord for that. Look what, look what happens in verses 16 to 18. Jesus says to her, go, call your husband and come here. <laughs> That's a bit of a change of trajectory, eh? Just go call your husband. Come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying I have no husband, for you've had five, five husbands, and the one you have now is not your husband. What you have said is true. See, Jesus tells her to go and and bring her husband to him, and the woman says short and defensively, her tone in this is like, I have no husband. She's trying to shut the conversation down. She's not telling him the whole truth. How many times do we just tell a little figment just to, just to get out of an uncomfortable situation? I don't have a husband. I don't have a husband. Go get your husband. I don't have one. But Jesus says, not to be deterred, Jesus says that what she said is true, but it's not the whole story. It's not the whole story. She has, in fact, had five husbands and is currently living in sin with a man who isn't her husband and so why is she concealing this why concealing this because it's she's living in in jewish culture it's looked upon as sinful and shameful to not only be divorced jewish men could divorce their wives for any number of reasons but to not only be divorced, but to having sexual relations with a man who was not her husband. And this is why, in verse 19, she goes on the defensive and starts to change the topic. Look at 19 and 20. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Now watch where she takes it. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. See what happens there? Change of trajectory. Back off, Jesus. Shut down the conversation. You're getting a little too personal. Upon hearing this, the woman looks to shut down or change this conversational topic as the conviction, as the conviction begins to take hold and turns it back on Jesus, whom she calls a prophet, and she starts talking to him about worship and the proper place to do it. Now the prophet, she's meaning here, the Greek there means one who speaks the truth of God. She knew that he was a prophet because how else could he know this? His bang on knowledge of her life. Now we have to understand something here. You can look at this and being like, man, Jesus is being really rude to her. I thought he was supposed to be, sh-. listen, Jesus isn't trying to shame her here, loved ones, by exposing her sin. Understand this. Jesus is not trying to shame her. He's trying to save her. Jesus never, ever, 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 did I say ever? Ever exposes our sin to shame us, but to save us from it. When you feel the conviction of the Holy Spirit, it's his gift of love towards you. Don't shut it down because it's uncomfortable and it's a place you don't want to go. He's loving, see what he's doing here? 
He's lovingly and compassionate. This woman who's been beaten down and rejected by society, looked upon as the lowest of the low, he's lovingly and compassionately exposing her sin, that which she is trying to bury in the secret, darkest, most confined places of her heart. And Jesus looks right there, and he goes after her, not to shame her, but to save her. That's the love of a merciful God. And he's drawing her heart so she will recognize her need for him, turn from her sin, and come to him. And so Jesus is saying here, loved one, and saying to someone in this room this morning, loved one, I see your sin. You can hide it. You can try to package yourself on Sunday mornings in that small group like everything's fine, but I see your sin. I see your pain. Loved one, I saw every part of the rejection and shame, every look of disdain on those other ladies' eyes towards you. I see it. I was there. I know. I've seen every part. I know you're hurt. I know your whole story. I've seen every tear you've ever cried, and I hold it in a bottle. Don't you see, loved one? Don't you see? I'm the only one who can cleanse you, who can heal you, who can save you, and who can satisfy you. I know the whole story. Do you recognize that I'm the only one who can fulfill you? And will you stop rejecting me for that which does not satisfy? Those men you're looking for satisfaction in, you're on number six and you have not found it yet. Do you really think you're going to find it there? But look at today, loved ones, don't we do the same thing? When we're confronted with sin and when, when the Holy Spirit out of his gift of grace and love exposes that in our lives, we change the subject. We shut it down. We go to small group and someone says, how, is, how are you doing? I'm fine, I'm good. Meanwhile, your life's falling apart. We come into church, big smiles, big packages. When someone goes to say and pray for you, it's like, yeah, I'm totally good. I don't really need prayer. Really? You sure? Jesus knows the whole story. He sees beyond the facade. And we do the same thing. We change the subject. Shut down the truth. As God's word is maybe even being preached right now, your flesh is like, don't go there. You don't have to listen to that. Just don't. If he only knew, don't. Who's he? Who's he? How many times do we hear this? Who, are, who do you think you are? That's the flesh talking. That's the enemy talking. Christ is not exposing your sin right now. He's not exposing those hurtful parts of your life right now to shame you and hold it over your head and be like, remember when? No, he's exposing them to save you and to say, remember me. The times you were bullied on a playground, 
The times you were rejected by a spouse or, or another relationship. or Remember him? Shut down the truth. I'm not coming to church. I want to go to a church that makes me feel really good all the time and that I'm okay. Jesus knows you're not okay. He knows I'm not okay. I'm not going to take correction from people. I'm going to be defensive. Because then I don't have to feel so bad. Jesus is drawing out the heart, loved one. Question, will you respond to him? Will you respond to him? And we make excuses, or we share, just like this woman. Nothing's changed. There's nothing new under the sun. We only share part of the truth. Just take a little bit off the the edge. Parts of the truth, but we conceal the sin to avoid the conviction. We conceal it. Hide it from people. Avoid the conviction. Loved one? So word for me this week, for us this week. Stop trying to conceal what the Lord has chosen out of his love for you to reveal. Stop trying to conceal what God in his love for you is trying to reveal. He sees it. We're not fooling him. Be encouraged with this. You'll see it on the screen. Commentator Tremper Longman III said it this way. The conscience must be awakened in order to create a desire for spiritual renewal. The conscience, the conviction of the conscience must be awakened in order to create a desire for spiritual renewal, to do something about it in the name of Jesus Christ. The conscience must be awakened. Are you allowing him to do that? Or are we being defensive? See, loved one, sum it up. Jesus is not trying to save you, shame you. He's trying to save you from that which cannot satisfy. He's trying to save you from that which if you continue to pursue satisfaction in those things, as this woman was doing in relationships, it will just lead you empty and broken and hurting and in more pain than when you started. Pursuing those things to try to cover it up and find satisfaction and peace and it will not happen. He loves you. Loved one, Jesus Christ is all you need. What are you substituting for him? As the Holy Spirit is doing this right now, what are you substituting? What are you running to? This lady was running to relationships. What are you running to? To try to be satisfied in that you think you need that isn't him. What are you trying to seek value, worth, life, peace, and satisfaction from which cannot give it? If I could say it another way, what are you worshiping that isn't Christ? What is your worship substitute? Because we're all worshiping something. Isaiah 43, 7, we are created to worship. We are all worshiping something. And if it's not Christ, it's a cheap substitute. What is it for you? What are you running to? Example, maybe for some, it's just like this lady. It's relational status. If I just get a man, I'll be satisfied. Maybe this one or the next one. If I just have a family, I'm going to be satisfied. If I just get this, I'm going to be set. Really? You sh- it won't happen. Empty cisterns, loved ones. Empty cisterns. Maybe, it's, maybe you're here and you're in this room and you're living together with, like this lady with someone that's not your spouse. And you're involved in sexual immorality and you are living in sin, loved ones. And God has brought you here not to shame you in that but to save you from doing something that will leave you broken, empty, and hurting. 
Hear the word of the Lord today, loved one. Come out of that. Don't run from it to avoid the conviction. Do not do that. You have a Savior that loves you and has promised you life and godliness. Do not reject him. Maybe for some of us, we're, we're running and substituting our worship of God for ourself. Look at my accomplishments. Look what I've done in the past. I'm going to worship myself. I'm going to be puffed up on my knowledge of God. I know lots. My concern for the next generation is that we have so much teaching on the knowledge of God that it does not lead us to the very one whom we are to worship because of that. I just know stuff about God, but it's not leading me to true worship of him where all true knowledge of God is to lead us. A greater love for him, a passion for him. Instead, I'm just looking who's proving wrong and who I can be right. Maybe for some of us, it's food. I'm feeling anxious, I'm feeling scared, I'm running to the fridge, and I'm going to binge eat. Or maybe for some of us, it's entertainment. I'm substituting the worship of video games and Netflix for the worship of God, because then I can be at peace and just kind of escape for a while. Loved ones, hear the word of the Lord. He's not bringing this out of you to shame you, but to save you today. That will leave you broken and empty, loved one. There are no number of trips to the fridge that will satisfy you, I guarantee it. Other sinful patterns that when we're confronted, we just make excuses or blame others. This is why I love small groups. God help us. If we ever become a church where small groups feel like we need to package ourselves and we can't be real with one another. God help us. That is not what the true church is to be. The truth is this. You'll see it on the screen. The true worship of God begins when we recognize our true need for God. And we will worship that which we feel we need the most. Always. We will worship that which we feel we need the most. True worship that God receives begins in a humble heart that sees their need for Christ that sees the need for Christ when I'm looking at the screen and the temptation to lust and pornography is there and I think I'm going to be satisfied with that. True worship begins in that moment and says, I don't need that. I need him right now. Screen off, Bible open, on knees. True worship starts to happen when we're going for the cupboard. We're going for the fridge. And we're like, this is not going to satisfy me. There is only one who can. I don't need this. I need him. That's where true worship starts. Recognizing the need. Recognizing that Jesus Christ is the only one who can fill it. Otherwise, we're worshiping whatever substitute we put in front of him. What is your substitute? What's your worship substitute, loved ones? Because true worship begins when we, a heart that willingly submits to him and not earthly substitutions for him. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. His grace is available in that moment of temptation. His grace is there. You might not see where it's coming from, but trust me, it's there. He goes, will you turn to me? Will you come out of chasing men 
And will you pursue me? Will you come out of chasing the dream to have it all and just come so you can have all of me? What's your worship substitute? True worship, to truly worship Christ, this is where it all starts. I must recognize my need for him. And from that, last point of this, last point today is this. I must respond in spirit and truth to him. I must recognize my need for him, and I must respond in spirit and truth to him. And the question that we are confronted with by this truth is this, loved ones. God wants true worship. Am I worshiping in spirit and truth? Look at verses 20 to 22. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, the woman says. But you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews. See, in verse 20 there, the woman then, notice her strategy? Just like us, we redirect. We redirect. She redirects the conversation to one of the most, contra- of all the topics, one of the most controversial topics between Jews and Samaritans, the proper place of worship. She redirects it and she calls Jesus into a worship war. This will get him off my heart. This will distract him. But watch what Jesus does. Now, now, in a moment. But recall first, recall first from last week, Samaritans believed that their worship was to take place on a mountain in the north called Mount Gerizim. You'll see it on the screen. This is where they're talking. Go ahead, put the picture up, team. Okay, you'll see it on the screen there. So on the top left, that's the ruins of the Samaritan temple. This is today. Ruins of the Samaritan temple, that's where they worshiped. And there's Mount Gerizim, and then you see Jacob's well on the bottom left. That's where they're having the discussion. Okay, there's an Orthodox church that's unfinished and built over it right now. But they built a rival temple there, right? Because their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, offered worship there. But the Jewish people believed that worship was only to be offered in Jerusalem in the temple. This was a huge piece of animosity between them. But in verse 21 and 22, you see Jesus, notice what he does? He refuses to get sucked in. He refuses to be distracted. He refuses to be distracted from drawing out her heart and tells her that the hour is coming when true worship won't be based on any external practice or location. True worship isn't going to be based on going through the motions at a specific time or a specific place. That's going to be obsolete. And he says, at the hour. What's he talking about there? Well, the hour, notice what he does. He draws her right to the place of his death and resurrection. He draws her right to the cross. Beautiful. He's not being distracted. He draws her right to the cross. The hour of his death on the cross and resurrection from the grave. You see what Jesus does right here that we need to take note, loved ones? Jesus makes the cross the central component of worship. There he is. He drives it right in. Out of all the external places and actions and all the things you can do, he draws it right to the hour of the cross. This is why I love having the cross as the central piece here. We don't worship the wood. We worship the one whom that represents and the sacrifice that he gave. He makes the cross the central place of worship. The cross is the entrance into the true worship of God through salvation in Jesus Christ. He draws her right to it. 
Forget the external places. Forget the actions. Forget, here's where we need to go. This is where true worship starts. And he tells her in verse 22, he tells her that in light of this, the hour coming, right now she is worshiping a God that she doesn't know. He says, you worship what you don't know. What are you talking about? Well, recall from last week, the Samaritans, they only looked at the first five books of the Bible as authoritative, the Pentateuch, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That's all they viewed as having authority. And they did, as a result of that, they didn't have the full revelation of God that he gave throughout the Old Testament. He goes, I've got so much more. You're worshiping something. You're going through the actions. You don't even know them. You don't even know who it is you're worshiping. But the Jews... So he said, he says, we worship what we do know. The Jews believed the whole Old Testament. They believed in the full revelation of God up to that point. And so they did know the truth of who they worshiped and that salvation came from them. Ultimately, all of those Old Testament prophecies pointing to Jesus. Again, we see here, you cannot unhitch the Old Testament from the new. He says, you worship what you don't know. We worship what we do know. Salvation's from the Jews. And then look at verses 25 to 20. Skip down. 25 to 26. Look at her response. She says, the woman said to him, well, I know the Messiah is coming. What do you mean I don't know? I know the Messiah is coming. He who's called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. She goes, I might not know things on them, but I'm going to know all things. Jesus, verse 26, said to her, look at this statement. I who speak to you am he. I'm the one who all of that points to. I'm the Christ. I'm the Messiah. Notice what he does there? That is stunning. He's not hiding his identity anymore. He's flat out declaring it. And the beautiful thing is, he chose a Samaritan. And you know what is even more staggering? He chose to declare it to you and me and to open our eyes to see it. See, she knew the Messiah is coming. She knew he would reveal the full revelation of God to them, but Jesus makes the absolute and direct statement that he himself was the Messiah and that she, that she and the world were waiting for. All of what she believed was pointing to him. Notice this? Jesus, who through his death and resurrection would make the external place and practice of worship a non-issue. Isn't that amazing? The external place and practice of worship, a non-issue right there at the cross. Because from this point on, the temple would be the heart that has been saved and made new by him and where the spirit of God now dwells. This is where worship starts. Here in the temple of my heart. The cross is the entrance into true worship of God. This is why commentator Robert Mounts, he said this, you see it on the screen, nothing but a genuine personal relationship with Christ will meet the requirements of worship in God's kingdom. Right there. Nothing but a genuine personal relationship, not paying lip service to God, saying, yeah, I'm a Christian, but a genuine repentance and faith saying, Lord Jesus, I believe that you are the Messiah. I believe that you are the Christ. And in repentance, turning from our sin and turning towards him, nothing less than that will meet the requirements of true worship in God's kingdom. Nothing less than that will he receive. That's a line in the sand. 
Because all true worship is done through Jesus. All of it. Empowered by the Spirit. The Father is only ever truly worshipped through the Son. The Father is only ever truly worshipped through the Son. Through, by faith, turning from our sin and confessing Him as our Lord and Savior. I'm done playing externals, God. I'm done playing lip service. I'm done raising my hands. I'm putting on the mask like this woman is, that, that I've got a relationship with you. I'm done with that. Jesus sees right to your heart, loved ones. He knows your whole story. He knows those who are His. We can't fake it. And we see in verses 23 to 24 that we'll finish with all true worship. True, the Greek means genuine and sincere from a heart that is his. Worshippers, they must worship God the Father in two ways. Notice there in verse 24, God is spirit and those who worship him must. That's a command. That word must in the Greek means it's an absolute necessity. It's an absolute necessity that I get worshipped in spirit and in truth or I will not receive it. They must, that's an imperative. I must, we must worship in spirit and in truth in two ways which are empowered. How do we do that? Two ways which are empowered by the spirit of God in them through Jesus Christ. These are the worshipers God is seeking and will receive worship from. Number one, true worship. Worshipers that worship in spirit. What is that? Worship from the heart. Worship from the heart. Verses 23 to 24, let's look. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here. Why? Because he's on earth. He's arrived. You don't have to wait around anymore. Is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for the Father is seeking. Does that not rattle your heart to the core that God the Father is seeking true worshipers right now? And he's looking at the heart. And is he saying, do I find that in you? This morning, Harvest Ottawa, does he find that in us? He's seeking. His 2 Chronicles 16 says his eyes roam to and fro across the earth, looking for those who are faithful for him. Does he see that? They, he's seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, verse 24, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. It's, it, it's, you cannot compromise this. But what is spirit? Let's get clear. What does spirit mean? He's not talking about the Holy Spirit in this moment. Okay? Yes, all true worship of God is empowered by the Holy Spirit as, as we receive the Holy Spirit at the moment of salvation. But what Jesus is speaking of here, the Spirit, is the human spirit, the heart. A heart that is fully surrendered to him. True worship must not come from external practices and rituals. Not just from raising hands on Sunday or kind of doing, you know, the Holy Spirit sway. Right, right? True worship doesn't come from externals, but from a heart that's been transformed, that knows Christ, that knows Christ, and has been transformed by him, and has been filled with the Holy Spirit who directs all true, true worship towards Christ. This is the mission of the Holy Spirit. John 16, 14. Jesus says, he will take what's mine and declare it to you, and I will be glorified. This is the mission of the Holy Spirit. A heart that is filled with the Holy Spirit is a heart that is giving true worship to God. This is worship that is given from a wholehearted commitment to God by the power of God through a life fully surrendered to God. Every part is worship. When we come, when he's talking about worship in spirit, he's not talking about, yeah, God, I'll give you these half of my life over here. I'll give you my, my job and my spouse, but I'm not going to give you my hobbies. I'm not going to surrender that to you. 
I'm going to keep that for myself because I don't want to know what it means. Because I, I, that conviction thing, I know I'll have to give it up. A heart that is fully surrendered to Christ, that doesn't just recognize him as their savior, but recognizes him as the Lord of their life. A heart that is committed to him. Every part, like I wonder, it just got me thinking, loved ones, you look around the landscape today, I wonder how many people right now here, maybe in this room and definitely all over this world, think they are truly worshiping God, but their hearts are far from him. Oh, they're going through the actions. Worship in certain places. I used to live in the Middle East. You'd see this all the time. I can only worship God here. I can only worship God here. I can only eat certain foods. I can only dress a certain way. I have to face a certain direction in order to worship him. Jesus obliterates that. But how many people are thinking they're going through the motions? How many people lighting more candles and doing all these things? Thinking they're just, but their hearts are far from the Lord. Thinking they're offering true worship. He says, I see your heart, loved one. Will you give that to me? I don't want your candle. I want you. How about you? Is your worship from a heart that is surrendered to him? Is it? Is it? Ask yourself. Write that question down. Is my heart, is my worship offered from a heart that is surrendered? Totally. And then I exhort you to ask the question, God, where is my heart not surrendered? Where is my spirit still about me? And maybe some of you are here and you've never confessed Jesus Christ as your personal savior before. This is your first step to turn to him. This is it. I repent of my sin and I confess you as my Lord and savior. Now true worship can begin. Through the cross. But he doesn't stop there. First thing God says, true worship is, offered, is worship offered in spirit from the heart. But lastly, we see this, it's offered in truth. Worship from God's word. Worship from God's word. Look at 23 and 24 again. But the hour is coming, Jesus says, and is now here when the true worshipers, genuine, authentic worshipers, will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and in truth. See, what's the word for truth there? The Greek for truth means this, the divine truth from who Christ says he is in his word. In his word. Not who culture says Jesus is. Not who we like to make him out to be, but who Jesus says he is. Not who other religions say he is, prophet, highest of angels, anything like that. Who Jesus says he is, the true witness, the one you can set your seal on. This is where true worship is offered from his word. Who he says he is, the promises he's made, the magnificent nature of him, learning this, growing in this knowledge, perfection of his holiness, of his sovereignty, of his love, of his grace, of his power. Awesome. And that's just skimming the surface. Awesome. Do you know who Jesus is? I say, well, I know he's like the son of God. He says, are you growing in your knowledge of who Jesus is? Through his word, literally every day. Because if this is how we must worship God, then this is what God expects of us, church. To not put our Bibles under the bed. In love, I exhort you in this today. Not leaving your Bible on the shelf. And students, taking your textbooks in exams. And putting it aside just until the exam. There will always be another exam period in your life. 
But do we take God's word as his word, knowing that God expects us, if we are to truly worship him, that we must increasingly know him. We must truly know him if we are to truly worship him, loved ones. You'll see it on the screen. The spirit of God through the truth of God fuels our worship of God. And as you are growing and the Holy Spirit is growing you more into the image of Christ, there's, a, there's an anticipation, there's a passion that grows when you come into the house of God, when you open your Bible in the morning, when you're in your small group. There's an anticipation. Here it comes. Here it comes. Here's who he is. That's why every worship song you see on that screen will be right in line with what God says about his son in his word. As elders, we've committed ourselves. Nothing gets on that screen if we don't line it up doctrinally with what God says. If it doesn't line up, we don't sing it. Because we must worship in spirit and in truth. It's not fluff and emotionalism. It's the truth of who God says he is. Why, why? Because here, why do we need to be in God's word? Isn't that like legalistic? Uh Uh-uh, it's life-changing. And here's why. Because the deeper we realize the truth of who Jesus Christ is and what he's done for us, the more we are not content to stand before him with our hands in our pockets, our minds distracted, and look bored in church. That's what happens when the living and active truth of God's word starts to pierce your heart. That's what happens. True worship comes from knowing the true Christ. Not made up who he says he is. So question, are you fueling your worship of God through the word, loved ones? Are you, not in some legalistic task, but are you fueling your worship of God through the word? Here, like on the Connect Desk, I just took a look. I didn't even tell Marganine I was gonna steal these off the Connect Desk today. But here's the reality. There's God Time 101 books to help get you started. There's Reading through the Bible in six months. There's a 52-week reading plan. There's 30 days with Jesus reading plan. There's the Bible story in 30 days. Take your pick. Or don't do any of those, but just open the book. Just open the book. Know your Savior. Or you were just like this lady. You don't know who it is you're worshiping. There's so much more, loved one. Is Facebook going to take over? There's so much more. Are we fueling it? Are we living live? Are you living? Last question of the day. Are you living as a true worshiper? Are you? That's what it comes down to. As you get to know deeply and intimately your Savior, watch this, watch this. As you get to know, and I get to know intimately and deeply our Savior, watch what happens to your worship of him. Just watch. Just watch. There is no true worship of who you don't truly know. Loved ones. And in his grace, he's made himself available to be known through his word. But question, are we living as true worshipers by recognizing the need we have for Christ and pursuing him in that and not the substitutions, empty cisterns of the world? And... And responding to him in spirit, in truth, from a heart that is increasingly submitted to him and growing in the knowledge of the truth of him. This is true worship that God is seeking. Will he find it? Will he find it in you? Here? In our church? Oh, I pray so. 
you join me in praying that? Let's pray. Father, you have made it so clear through the words of your son to this woman in this dusty place of Samaria that no one else wanted to go, choosing to reveal himself as the Messiah. God, you've made it so clear what you expect. Thank you that you are not a God who says, worship me, and then doesn't tell us how. Thank you. No other religion does that. None. None. In your love, in your grace, you haven't just told us what you want from your people. You've made the way for that to happen through the cross, through the cross of Jesus Christ. And I pray today that if there are people in this room, they are not yours. You see the heart. They would take their first step to respond to you and say, Jesus Christ, you are my greatest need. And I turn from all those things. I turn from all my sin that I'm running to and substituting for you. And I turn to you as my Lord and Savior. Will you save me? And your answer is yes. So Father, I pray right now that for those of us who have made that decision, that we would stop substituting worldly stuff for growing in the knowledge of you. I pray for that right now as this spirit of conviction in this room. God, you're not doing this to shame people. You're doing it to save us. Thank you. Show us. And right now, just as we sing this last song, we would respond as you say, come ye sinners, poor and needy. Do you thirst from the fountain today? Do you thirst from that fountain? The fountain of healing, the fountain of satisfaction. Do you thirst to know me? I'm seeking that. And when you seek me with your whole heart, you will find me. Yes, Lord, may this be the heartbeat of the worship of this church.